0: Trading Podcast. I'm Jamie Usher. Welcome back. So in this episode I was extremely fortunate to be joined by Dr. Tom Brunzel, who is currently the Director of Education at Berry Street. Due to the large amount of research that Tom has performed or been involved in, he has a significant understanding of trauma, the effects of trauma, causes of trauma, and even the vicarious effects on people who work with others who have trauma. And Tom comes on to talk about his book, which is creating trauma-informed, strength-based classrooms for, obviously, an educational setting. Um, But I also just wanted to talk to Tom. I think he's just on another level of consciousness. I think there's a lot that people can take out of how patient he is, how calm he is, his understanding of working with trauma is really informative, and I'm sure people are going to get a lot out of this episode, particularly if you work in an education setting or work with others who have trauma. Very informative episode. I really enjoyed recording this, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Currently, you're the Director of Education at Berry Street. How long have you been with Berry Street for?
1: I am one of the longest standing staff members in our education programs at Berry Street. So, I moved here... 10. No, I moved here over 10 years ago. Yeah. And I was supposed to stay for a month. And then that turned into a year and that has turned into 10 years. And now I'm the director of education services. Yeah. So it's been a real privilege to serve our teams at Barry street. And for sure, my, uh, my career there has been an unexpected opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So, are you able to give maybe, or you could be, be able to give a better explanation than me, but are you able to give a bit of an explanation to the listeners what Barry Street is?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Barry Street is one of Australia's largest child and family welfare organisations. Uh, we're over 140 years old, and we were started by a group of strong women all the way back in the Ballarat Gold Rush when people... Uh, when people realized around town that there were a whole bunch of babies with not a lot of homes to go to. And so, this group of women really wanted to care for these babies, and they went to all these organizations and churches and other organizations, and they were turned away. Mm -hmm. And so, they just decided that they were going to do it themselves. And so, that lineage has turned into our work at Berry Street, and now we have a number of comprehensive services in things like therapeutic care for out-of-home care children, And young people, uh, all of the services required for residential support and often in out of home care arrangements, and uh, family violence uh, supports and clinical help around young people experiencing the impacts of violence. And I am uh, in charge of education uh, and uh, guide our education programs.
0: Okay. So, like, what you did when you came out to Australia, it was Berry Street, I guess, one of the reasons you came out?
1: Yeah, it was the reason. So, I I mean, I certainly, I was in New York uh, at the time. I'd been a teacher in New York for a long time and a school leader in Harlem. Uh-huh. And yes, I was very intrigued by Australia, right? Like I, as an American citizen, I spent my whole life thinking that the only place that mattered was America, and so when given the opportunity to visit Australia, I thought, "Oh, okay, sure, I'll go over there and have a nice vacation." And when I landed here, yes, I thought Victoria was very nice and Melbourne was very cool, and I could imagine myself living here for quite some time. But it was—I really stayed because of Barry Street, and I stayed because Barry Street had been really developing what has now become trauma-informed practice in our country. And uh, when I joined Berry Street, they said, Hey, we have this school called the Berry Street school. Mm-hmm. And we have four campuses in Morwell, uh, Shepherdin, Noble Park, and Ballarat soon to be opening in Nary Warren. And I was brought here to help our teachers uh, to bring our approach to edu- an approach to education that would value well being and trauma informed practice and help teachers help kids on the margins of uh, their school communities and I stayed because of the opportunity to continue developing those ideas. So I like saying I fell in love with Melbourne for sure. I think okay. it's the coolest place to live in the country. Yeah. Uh, but I really stayed because of the opportunity to forward Barry Street.
0: Okay. So how long ago again did you come out? Uh, Like 11 years
1: ago was the first trip. And Mm then uh, Barry Street kept inviting me back. (laughs) And so there was this a bit of uh, a lot of flying back and forth for about a year. And then uh, we stayed. Okay.
0: So prior to your uh, teaching in Harlem and the Bronx, as you you say, so you've got um, Masters of Teaching and Masters of Education, and you also did your... Um, PhD at Melbourne University is that correct? Yes, yes, I did. Okay, so was this the the, the, um, the PhD in um, Melbourne University that was more recent? Was it? Yeah, I
1: graduated two years ago, and I have
0: the bizarre distinction of being the final graduation
1: <laughs> before COVID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so now they, I got to, I got to physically walk across the stage. I think I'm like the last, I'm the last cohort that got to do yeah. that so wow. for a while. Okay
0: what what was your experience before working in uh in in the uh in Harlem and the bronx did you say what kind of like did you had you done your master's of teaching and education before then or what 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 i guess what had you done before you you were in the teaching there in that area
1: yeah good uh good question i i had a very different life before I became a teacher so i was My whole uh, childhood in high school, I was obsessed with fashion design and I had my whole, my life's goal as a young person was to work uh, as a designer. And I did get to fulfill that uh, in my early twenties. And I worked for a series of very cool designers and uh, stores, uh, national labels in across America as a menswear designer. And then around age twenty-seven, I realized I needed to invest in something more. Im- well, what I deemed as more important than the size of a buttonhole or the color of that shirt. And I still very much care about fashion, but it's much better as a I'm much better as a spectator sport uh, with fashion. But I knew that I wanted to become a teacher, and so, like many many teachers, I. Um, was hired into a school in the Bronx. Uh, my school is across from Yankee stadium. If your listeners have been in New York and I know a lot of Australians have been to New York Mm -hmm. and like many teachers, I had to go to the Bronx every day for my day job. And then at night I would study. And I was part of a teach. I was part of TFA teach for America. And that was a program to select, um, uh, high performance uh, undergraduates to channel the talents and skills that they had in the teaching. Because I think like in America, as in Australia, um, when a young person says, I want to become a teacher, a lot of parents say, well, why would you want to do that? You can do so much more. You can make so much more money. So I love programs like TFA, T- Teach for America and Teach for Australia, mm-hmm. who are saying, hey, this is, this is about social equity. And you can, you can really contribute to communities if you become a teacher. So I knew that those were my people. And I uh, became part of the Teach for America program. And then at night, did my first master's degree in teaching. Mm -hmm. And then in the Bronx, uh, very similar to the concerns that I know that uh, are in Frankston North, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a school full of teachers new to the profession, and it's also an opportunity to develop your craft quickly and figure out your strengths. And if you're good at what you do, you get leadership opportunities much sooner than you probably deserve in any other school. And so, uh, two years as a second year teacher, I was named the lead teacher of mathematics for the school. And I've never. I remember the principal calling me and saying, "You need to be the lead teacher." And I said, "I've only been here for two years, and I am not going to tell twenty-five year old veteran, twenty-five year veterans in this thing what to do." And she said, "Oh, you'll figure it out." <laughs> and so, uh, but I realized then that uh, being a, a school lead, uh, being on a leadership team in a school would have a lot of opportunity uh, to affect change. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of opportunities kept coming uh, because uh, I really focused on both student results as in increasing reading scores and reading ability at the same time as knowing that it wasn't just about performing on a test. It was about helping kids love reading and helping kids love what they were doing and the results results would follow. So after, um, my first years teaching in a primary school in the Bronx, I was asked to start a school with some fellow colleagues in Harlem. And that school is still there at 127th and Broadway and in, in uh, West Harlem. And that became... And it's called the KIPP Infinity Charter School. And then our school became very successful for integrating well-being in some really interesting ways. And that got the world's attention because we had the highest highest student increases in learning. And we attributed it to really focusing on student well-being. And so that's why a whole group of Australians started visiting our school. And one thing led to another. And one of those Australians was from Barry Street. And we started exchanging emails, and the rest is history.
0: Ah, okay. So, uh, the uh, so in the I guess Harlem and both the Bronx as well. So there's, I've never been to America, but from what I understand, there's major disadvantage there. Or there was. I'm, I'm I'm not sure how much it's changed, but is am I correct in saying that?
1: Oh. Uh. Oh yes, uh, you know America is emblematic of a very, very, very small group of people hold all the wealth, huh? and uh, as we've witnessed in the divisive politics of the last five years, uh, it takes a lot of community effort to put social equity on the agenda, and so. Yes, I have certainly, just like you do, work with families of great disadvantage, of generational disadvantage, families that have experienced intergenerational racism mm-hmm. and intergenerational uh, struggle. Mm-hmm. And my, <laughs> I, uh, I laugh now with great love for my first classroom in the Bronx because I was a fourth grade teacher. That was my first gig. And all these little nine and 10-year-olds who had anyway, grown up in the neighborhood. Uh, I, you know, I, I, in my training, I was like, you're not going to stereotype these kids and you're not going to put them in boxes and we're not going to put them in labels and you're going to do your best. And I remember showing up at the Bronx <laughs> totally unprepared, really, to, for what I was about to do. And I made every mistake in the book my first two years <laughs> of teaching, I'm sure. But I would do very silly things now by saying to my little kids hey, we're going to go on a neighborhood walk and you're going to show me and tell me all about your neighborhood because I want (laughs) to learn it. And so, of course, I had 40 kids in my classroom uh, in my first years. And so 40 kids lining up And of course I don't really know what I'm doing. We're like walking around the central Bronx and the kids would say things like, you know, we're in the murder capital of the United States. (laughs) And that's where all the deals go down. And over there is where, and I would be like, Oh, okay, well, you know, I'm thinking maybe these 10 year olds are incorrect. And then of course I came with deep respect to understand that 10 year olds see everything and they know what's happening. And uh, it is very true that the central Bronx has the highest, um, highest murder rate, uh, in, uh, all of New York city. Yeah. And that's saying something. Uh, and so the, I've always had great faith in those students, uh, because they just have incredible resilience to do what they're doing every day. And the cool thing is I still get to stay in touch with them with through things like LinkedIn and yeah. Facebook, and they get to tell me I'm a professional now. And I,
0: yeah, I have a job and you are, you're
1: a professional, Mr. Brunzel. And we get to connect. <laughs>
0: So, uh, did, where were, were you actually born in the States yourself? Uh,
1: yeah, I did, uh, no, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam uh, okay. in the late 70s and uh,
0: was adopted and was raised in Los Angeles. Raised in Los Angeles, okay. So, that's why I sound the way I do. <laughs> yeah, yes, okay. So, I guess that that leads me to something that I'm really interested in about yourself, Tom, is what prepared you for being able to handle... Children in the, uh, I, I guess, working with children in the Bronx. How how did you develop an understanding of being able to work with them? Because I'm sure, like you, you, don't get that kind of understanding from from study. Was there, I guess, things from your own upbringing that um, gave you an insight, and understanding, and awareness, and empathy, and that kind of stuff that that helped you be able to work with the students like like you like you did.
1: That's a deep question, Jamie.
0: I have a, I have a yeah, that, few. That's idea. why I've got you on here. <laughs>
1: Uh, I, I think that it is karmically correct that the first students that I got to teach were 10 years old because, and I, for a while there, I feel like I became a 10 year old specialist, uh, because 10 years old is a very important year. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a year from a bio social, perspective, it's a year where the human brain is pushing forward into the development of the prefrontal cortex, the thinking ability. It's the reason why nine-year-olds are and 10-year-olds can be so much more well-regulated than younger kids or older kids, because younger kids and older kids and around those ages. Are developing their emotional lives. But there's this glorious moment in child development around age nine and ten where the thinking brain turns on and suddenly kids start looking around and realize, wait a second, the world is not what I thought it was. The world is not everyone in the world gets treated fairly. Not everyone in the world has the same things. Not everyone where, not everyone in the world lives in the same places. And I feel like kids younger than that are not you know they're not comparing and they're not thinking at the same level as this group of kids and i've often thought well what was i then doing at age nine and ten why why you know when my brain starts thinking and comparing and uh realizing and trying to sort out my own place in the world i realize now that a series of There was a series of inconsistencies, I suppose, in my own childhood, uh, that have led, I think, very, very, uh, strongly to the lineage of decisions that I've made, Mm -hmm. um, you know and when I was 10 years old, I realized the world is not as I thought it was. In that, I, I've always known that I was adopted, uh, because I am an Asian looking person <laughs> and proud of it. And, uh, and my parents in Los Angeles are white, they're third generation Swedish immigrants and as Southern California as Southern California could be. Uh, they're blonde and healthy and robust, and so I. I I had grown up my whole life knowing that I was adopted, but it wasn't until age nine and 10 we start realizing, well, what does that really mean? Like I I'm in this family and I, and I feel loved and supported by these people, but I didn't come from these people. And then, uh, I was raised in a place of great privilege uh, and my parents uh, were first generationally well they weren't first generation in the country but they were the first in their families to go to university and in the 80s they worked very hard and so and they had, and they had a lot of privilege uh, based on where they came from mm-hmm. and so uh, I went to schools where I was the only non-white kid and so and I was also very good at school so mm-hmm. You know, I had this funny identity of being both an insider outsider to conforming well to the system of education, but also feeling like I didn't really belong culturally to what was happening. Yeah. Uh, as I grew up, I started realizing that not only did I always have sort of a an attention placed on those who were left out, mm-hmm. uh, but there were times when I was left out, and times when I was included, and times when I felt absolutely part of a culture and parts where I was felt excluded from that culture. And then as I grew up and tried to begin to understand both my identity as an Asian person, eventually understanding myself to be a gay person. um, I was raised in the church and that comes with some of its own complexities. If in a very conservative church This constant idea of inside-outside, trying to balance things for myself, I realized that my attention was always on people on the margins, and I think now I can look back and think those were all opportunities to grow and to see my insider-outsider-ness as a gift, Um, which allows me to... I think uh, I'm pretty good at empathizing. I'm pretty good at helping people set goals, and I'm pretty good at being inside a group and then stepping outside a group to be able to take a balcony view of things and try to figure out what a team may need to keep moving forward.
0: Okay. That gives great insight, I guess, for me, because uh, I, I didn't know any of that about you. I didn't know you were adopted, um, uh, I guess, yeah, that and that that gives... I guess yeah, why, I gives it gives a good reason to why you would have such good awareness and empathy for people that have been marginalised in for I guess for different reasons. But I mean, uh, uh, from what I've noticed about you, Tommy, is like you you walk into a place and you've got this, you've got this calmness about you, um, and just this this understanding of like. Uh, I, I, I it's almost just an, a natural thing, it's like it's not something, you couldn't be taught your level. Well, the, my personal view on it is I don't think you could be taught your level. I think you would have had to experience certain things to be able to get the level of awareness. I think um, maybe obviously your education is added to it as well, but your education plus your just the things that you've gone through in life, and those combining has just given you just this, to be honest, in my point of view is this like this God level of understanding, as in like you walk into a place and you're like, Oh man, yeah, that, that, uh, Tom knows his stuff. Uh, and, and like, you, you would just have the ability to just be calming, whether it's calming with adults, calming with, um, with students. Like, I I can't imagine you ever getting heightened in any way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! But, but, but what's, what I, what I, what I'm thinking is, if, if you did get heightened, it'd be your kind of version of heightened, not heightened like me. (laughs) Well, I will say I've never seen you be heightened, my friend, but I, <laughs> not, not,
1: I have a few. I, anyone who's known me from New York knows I used to yell a lot. Really? I used to yell, yell, yell. Yes. So, I mean, uh, I, uh, your prompts, I want well, to say two things here uh, on my best of days. Yeah. I'm super aware of who I am and where I am. And I think that whole idea that we were just talking about around insider outsiderness you know, like I never, I was never able to take my identity for granted. Therefore mm-hmm. I was always quite aware of who I was and who I needed to be. So if I was with a group of friends, uh, I needed to be the right person in front of them. And not, and, and, and I, and I wouldn't say putting on an act, I would say, I understood very early that there were parts of our personality that were authentic in different places, in different times. I was always very good with adults when speaking to adults. I was Mm -hmm. always very good in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized that skill of figuring out how to be, and say things that I wanted to say, i.e. authenticity, at the same time try to communicate things in ways that would land, I know that that is a skill that's taken me 47 years to hone. Um, I, uh, now, to, to tell you the real journey of my teaching, uh, and I start my book with this story, mm-hmm. um, when I went to my first years of teaching, my first day of teaching, I could hear other teachers yelling at their classrooms, Mm sit down, blah, blah, blah. It was the first week of school. It's probably the first day of school. It was like, sit down, line up, blah, 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 stop throwing scissors. And uh, I thought, oh, I wouldn't be that person. I won't be that person. I'll I'll be a calm person. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize is that we mirror the people we're in front of, whether we are conscious of it or not. And what was happening to me is that the dysregulation and anger and frustration of my students. Mm -hmm. um, I developed a very terrible and inaccurate theory that said, well, if students are angry and they come from communities that are frustrated and angry, Mm -hmm. then as a teacher, I'm going to be a better communicator if I can show them who's boss and I can show them who I can show them how to be anger, but in a smarter way, I can show them that I can I'm in control and they'll respect me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think for two years solid, I yelled a lot. And I tried to yell things that I thought were helpful to kids like, you need to sit down because I care about you. (laughs) Like, like really weird tongue twister things um and because i because a mentor early on said look everyone at the school is yelling so for you to stop yelling would be strange mm-hmm. but you can't demean a kid you need to say things with assertiveness okay all right whatever but uh fast forward um well no sorry i don't want to fast forward yet what I found after my first 3 years of teaching was I was exhausted. I was so exhausted. I was I was expending all this energy all day trying to do my best, manage and help and support kids. I had great relationships with kids in that, you know, like my 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 kids that were <laughs> that group of kids that makes a lot of drama and has a lot to say. I always spent more time with them. I would go to recess and play with them and I would spend lunch times with them. And we would, yell, I would yell, we would yell at each other. Like they'd be like, I, I don't want to do this. And I'd be like, you're going to do this. And then I'd say, Oh, we're going to go out for lunch now, or I'm going to have lunch with you on the playground and we're going to talk about this. But, um, I was exhausted. And then after feeling exhausted, I realized that I didn't feel like a professional unless I was buzzed up. So I would drink two cups of coffee in the morning and, r- and my school was on five flights of stairs in the Bronx. So I would run upstairs two at a time to try to get my energy up. And um, that was exhausting. And I would ride the subway train home every night. Like I don't have any lightning left to give. And then I'd wake up at five in the morning and do the whole thing all over again. Yeah. It wasn't until I learned from Barry Street the name trauma-informed practice. Yeah. And I thought, well, oh, what's that? That sounds interesting. It's even the words trauma-informed practice to people like us sounds like something we should check out. Yeah. And the first thing I learned at Barry Street as a new employee was the impact of trauma and vicarious exposure to people who are struggling. Yeah. And I remember like it was yesterday looking at a research paper saying, well, how do you know if you're experiencing vicarious stress, mm-hmm. number one, you're exhausted. Number two, you become somebody you don't want to become, which for me was yelling. Number three, you feel hypervigilant. You're scanning everywhere for, you know, what's going to come next. and What do I have to do and how do I have to stay awake and how does I have to stay alive in this situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, and three, you turn for my issue, it was, turning everything into a problem and feeling like the world is on your shoulders and that you have to go at this alone and you have to take care of this. And I realized, Oh, for the last, for my first years of teaching, I was deeply impacted by the vicarious um, dysregulation that I was experiencing and witnessing. Mm -hmm. No one in my school or in those days talked about these things. And I thought, Oh, wow. If, if I had just known even half of what was on this piece of paper, I would have been aware mm. and I could have sought support for myself and I could have shortcutted years of stress, um, which has led to what we are talking about today. Mm. But that's that's how I knew that Barry Street had something to offer me and I've worked hard to offer something back to Barry Street our communities.
0: So, that, I guess that ties in really well. Um, so, you have a new book coming out. So, it's Creating Trauma in... Formed strength-based class rooms is that correct that's it that's it yeah and that is co-authored with dr jacqueline north norrish a good
1: friend of mine and jackie and i have collaborated on many many things through the years including uh we along with our colleagues co-authored the barry street education model and uh all sorts of stuff okay yes
0: so can you give a, give a bit of a I guess some insight on the book um, to myself and a listener, like I'm I'm super keen to learn more about that because there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> that that I would work with that are going to be listening to this so yeah totally so we I got the
1: best compliment yesterday from a, somebody on our team they said I just finished your book. And I said, well, thank you. You, you didn't have to. <laughs> and She said, no, I finished it because she said, I just thought it was going to be a rehash of your PhD. I thought it was just going to be a whole bunch of your like research speak. <laughs> and I, I, and frankly, I wasn't really going to look forward to reading all that research. I said, oh, "No," uh, I said, she said, uh, it's, it's really easy to read because uh, it feels like you're talking to us teachers. And that was the point. And, yeah. um, When I set out to write a book, this is my first book, um, and when I set out to write a book, I thought, what do I want to do here? Um, And it was very important that the first big publication like this would not be about my research and necessarily, and it wouldn't necessarily be about my own journey. I feel like there's much more to live to do that, yeah. but I very much wanted to create a practical guide for teachers and Jackie and I very much focused on if you were a new teacher and this was your first year in a community like the Bronx or Frankston North or mm-hmm. Ipswich or any of the communities that we care so much about. Yeah. What would you need to know? And what would be the tone and advice and strategies that would really help you? And so we wrote the whole perspective. Uh, We wrote from the perspective of communicating to teachers new to our profession. And of course, every teacher uh, we think can benefit.
0: So I guess um, for for people listening, how I was first introduced to um, to Tom is Tom come um, Tom has come into the school through Berry Street to do um, to I guess deliver um, PDs to the staff about helping um, helping them better understand students from certain areas and uh, I guess from i guess differing traumatic backgrounds for you know, a whole lot of different reasons that you know they might be may have experienced trauma and better understanding them to help them regulate and also re- helping better re- regulate themselves as staff and teachers to kind of have a, just a more positive environment so that's how i was first introduced to you uh, and i i can honestly say Uh, yourself and Berry Street, the the practices that we've learned from you are the most significant and most successful things that we have had here, uh, where I work, and the things that I've been involved with here for the the most significant differences have come through um, all the stuff from Berry Street. Um, And I think that comes down to the way it's been delivered by you.
1: I appreciate that. Well, first of all, I deeply appreciate that. I have... um, I, as you know, I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours of my life in your school community for over two years now, and I have grown to build a deep affection for your staff and students. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to think that, yes, I'm a pretty good teacher of stuff, but I'd also like to think that what we're doing with your school and many others in the community is giving practical stuff Mm -hmm. that can help kids do what they want to do. Um, I, I uh, to answer your question about what what's in the book and also what we've been doing in mm-hmm. school communities is, we've been gluing together two areas of practice to uh, to build on to to provide strategies for student engagement and achievement. The first is as we've been talking about trauma informed practice, which really focuses for teachers and well being staff in schools um, to say, hey, there are things that have happened in this kid's life. That have created an unmet need. Mm-hmm. And this kid is not out to get you. This kid is not take, taking it out on you. This kid is just having a really hard time. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to meet unmet needs. And she's trying to survive in this world the only way they know how. Um, for teachers and well being staff in schools, we want people to consider that adversity impacts learning in two ways two broad ways. One is just like you said, uh, our ability to stay self-regulated, both emotionally regulated, physically regulated in times of stress and learning and school and especially high school. It's all stress all the time. Like, our, it's a pressure cooker for kids to figure out who they are and to figure out their goals and to be worried about the social firmament, which they should be. I mean, that's their life in high school Mm -hmm. and chart your future. So to be able to stay self-regulated in the midst of all of that, so you can learn that requires a lot of strategies. Uh, The second area that we want to increase, just like you said, is relationship, right? Like kids who struggle in school often feel alone or they feel like they're the only ones going at it. And when you feel like you're alone, then you're going to back, you feel backed up into a wall. Then some of our kids come out fighting and some of our kids give up. And so we know that that relational health or that relational ability is what teachers and your great staff can do so much better at, right? You can learn so many more strategies. Um, So that's the trauma informed word. Yeah. The other side, which we put in the title of the book is strengths and looking at what's right in kids and not blaming kids, but realizing each one of these students is, well, I say special and unique, but a lot of the times, and I wonder what you would say to this, I look at some of our kids and I'm like, dude you're you're cool (laughs) like you you have this funny coolness that is a little bit too much right now Mm -hmm. but if you can channel this you can be pretty awesome out there and that's always planned
0: our intervention ethos (laughs) what do you what do you think i I think yeah maybe because of the um maybe the the background that ge- these people uh, have experienced like whether it's their own in like trauma in the house or even just in this environment where they, they live the in frankston north they can almost just be living here could be considered somewhat traumatic for some of some of the things yeah. they have seen yeah. and been a part of and whatnot but they're so character filled yes, like yeah. The, 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 a lot of them, um, and uh, Brian, who I work with, has been a, on this podcast as well. it says the same thing. They're just they're so funny that like he has good banter with them, and he's like they're just they're always yes. entertaining. But I think maybe their um, their background, uh, and I say background, but I mean and I mean like possibly trauma in whatever way from, from so many different uh, differing degrees of what, how that may have uh, differing degrees of trauma and how it may have come about. But I think that's definitely added to their, uh, added to their character. And I think, as you say, when you, it might, they might, some of them might be a lot now and hard to handle now, but they, they can start to channel that. And as they go on, it's going to work for them. It's going to be, it's going to give them great personality. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It, it's going to give them such character, And also, I'm always inspired
1: by research that says that if people who have experienced disadvantage and unfairness are given the right tools at the right time, they can turn out to be people to make great contributions back to their community. And I think a great example of that is the young people that you and I support There's always kind of a moment with someone, one of those young people says at the end of the year, you know what, I think I might want to be a youth worker. And you look at that kid and think, you'd be a great youth worker. You you have experienced the dark side of life. You know what it takes to to survive and build on your strengths. You would be great at this thing. That would be an excellent pathway for you.
0: What was your experiences like in the school? In in um, I guess what you call elementary, but elementary is primary school, isn't it? Yeah, elementary. Yeah, yeah. And our uh, high school and middle school. What what were your experiences like? I was a very high flying student.
1: Uh, most learning came pretty easy to me and uh, I excelled very quickly and I was a very much a self-starter and yeah. uh, I, I certainly have strengths in humanities and literacy. I would say maths I- ironic that I was named lead teacher of maths because that's not really my strength as a <laughs> researcher or a leader, but I um, was given opportunities to build on those strengths. Both. I was a very creative kid. A very artistic kid. I um, I involved myself. Well, and also I, like I said earlier, I thought I was going to go to design school. Yeah. And instead of going to design school, I ended up going to Yale university, which is an Ivy league university in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, and it was, Actually, the design school that told me to go to Yale, because I applied to all these schools as a lot of year 12s do yeah. uh, at the right times and the right ways. And I got into the United States' um, best design school called Parsons School of Design in New York City. And I also, at that same moment, got into Yale, that at the time had the country's best art department. And so I remember going to Parsons uh, admissions people saying, Well, what do you think? What do you, what do you think I should do? I don't know why I asked them that. They said, If you have the opportunity to go to Yale, you should go to Yale and you can always come back to us. And that, that was, I always look back at one of those inflection moments in the road. Like that changed my entire trajectory because it was at my undergrad, Jewett experience where I did a whole bunch of art and design classes, but I also did a lot of social justice theory and a lot of sociology and a lot of trying to understand the world we live in. And when I look back at that, those studies, I draw on that, you know, just as much as I do on my uh, design work now, I know I'm not. I, I don't. It doesn't look like I'm a designer, but hopefully, from looking at our books and our materials and things, and my slides and all that stuff, I still care a lot about the way things look because it's about communication and clean and clear and crisp communication. <laughs>
0: um, I guess going back, going back to your book, what do you think? What do you think the main differences are from? I guess. So, for, for teachers that would be reading reading the book, what would be the main differences they might be able to get from the book to what they might already have gotten from the Berry Street education model? What would be maybe some um, some things in the book that might be a bit different?
1: Oh, I, uh, I well, after you get to finish the book, I want you to tell me that. That's good. Okay. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the things that I love as both a researcher and practitioner out there is it's always changing, right? The research is always evolving. The research is never static. Ideas are never static. Mm -hmm. So the training that we developed was developed about six years ago. Mm -hmm. And then we have constantly changing and evolving our training materials. And then the book was sort of the next version of that for us. Cause the, you know, looking at all of the work that we've done in schools across the country, um, the book was a really excellent opportunity to reflect on that work, clarify the work, simplify some things, make some things more robust, yeah. and so uh, from reviewers and other friends that know the work really well, they've uh, they've helped give me feedback that says what the book does is create a narrative through the research. Mm-hmm that you can't necessarily get if you don't if you're not in a training room with us so you know our training is pretty robust it, it's over the course of a number of days and we you know we work often to the schools yeah. and so when we're working with the school we're tailoring everything we're doing for the school community in this unique school context yeah. the book provided a different kind of opportunity to begin to tell a story of research practice history of our work in a way that a person new to the work could benefit from not just advances in research since five years ago, but also our own building research. So uh, it's not just other people's research, but we our team's been doing research with, through the University of Melbourne for the last five years as well. So I, I'd like to think that the book is definitely the newest version of uh, the work you've experienced.
0: Okay. I think not only... Um Having a better understanding uh, I guess, of uh, students' traumatic background and how we can help them um, regulate themselves better, not just in the classroom, I think there's a lot of what we um, a lot of what we've learned and a lot of what you've brought to I guess um, to where I work at Monterey. Um, a lot of it can be taken home to... Better understanding the impact, um, I guess the impact that we're having on our on our own kids, but also helping helping us understand our own kids as well. That's I think that's been fantastic. That's so it's not just a it's not just a thing that other things what we've learned uh, it, uh, through Berry Street in the school that doesn't just help us out at, uh, in the classroom or working in well-being or w- whatever it is. A, a lot of it has is has given me a better understanding at home as well. Of, um, so with even with my own daughter and helping um, me understand her and, and the impact I'm having with her. And so like me being heightened can heighten her and me being more relaxed can help relax her. And it's just like giving, giving a much better understanding of like that's, uh, um, yeah, just how, how, how one can influence the other. Um, and I've really appreciated that and it's, yeah, that's been really good.
1: That's pretty rewarding to hear, Jamie, because um, one thing I've learned uh, is that if we take trauma-informed and strengths-based practice for real, and we're going to do our best, it's not about what we say to kids, whether it's our own children or the children in our classrooms, but it's who we are in front of them. Yeah. And uh, from one of my mentors in New York, I've always, this always stuck with me. We we are models of adulthood yeah. that we, yes, we can say and lecture people, little ones and bigger ones, but they can see right through the lecture and they can say, well, I want to be that p- kind of person when I grow up, or I do not want to be a yelling person when I grow up. That doesn't look very that attractive. And uh, one thing, one of the surprisingly Great findings from my own PhD research is there is a difference between Groups of teachers who either decide as you have just so well articulated that this isn't just about the students, this is about all of us together, community. This is about us helping each other as adults and students in healthy ways together. We have the model for the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I don't model these things, I'm not really living authentically these things, then it's never going to happen for the kids. Versus another group in my research, another group of teachers in my research said, Oh, I want to help the kids, but I don't come to school to learn strategies for my own self. Like this isn't a self-help thing for me. And we never said to them, Oh, this is a self-help thing for you. But we did say, if you want to model self-regulation or sorry, if you want your kids to be self-regulated, then you have to be self-regulated. If you want to, if you want your kids to be collaborative, uh, creative people in team and group learning, then you have to live that, um, And a lot of teachers in the other group said, well, that's not for me. I'm just going to teach kids. Well, their well-being did not increase both inside and outside the classroom. So, uh, you know, everybody, every adult, every staff member is on their own journey toward professional refinement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's why I hope in our training and in the book, there's different access points for people to say, ah, uh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to understand what mindfulness, for instance, means for mm-hmm. me. But I'm interested in emotional intelligence. Those are access points, and we want people to access uh, in a way that they can try things tomorrow for themselves.
0: Okay. Uh, one of the things that I've also noticed about the changes where I work at, uh, at Monterey is through the, through this. Uh, Uh, implementing the the Berry Street model the Berry Street education model it hasn't just improved individual classes Tom it's helped improve the whole school culture like I've been here I've been here seven years so I'm not one of the longest serving staff members but I'm probably now because of the staff turnover that's happened through changes and uh, of uh, leadership and and whatnot uh, like I've, I've seen a lot uh, I've, I've, I was fortunate enough to see even when the old buildings used to be here, luckily we don't have any of those old buildings here, because uh, that's that's also added to big changes here, but uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks this, but the, uh, what we've learned through Berry Street hasn't just changed the individual classrooms, it's actually started to change the culture of the school, and I think that comes through individually starting individually like the teachers have a better understanding they have better confidence in what they what they uh, i guess uh their, their, what they're delivering, the way, not maybe so, not what's not so much what they're delivering but the, the way they're delivering it because they have certain things, just like the students they can rely on, they start a class in a certain way and they'll do certain things in a class and they'll, and they'll know that, you know, that there's uh, there's consistency in the way they're doing it and then that improves their class and then so that individually goes into the next class, the next class, the next class, and then across the whole school the culture has started to change. and uh, So, as I've said, the most significant changes in this environment that I've seen since I've worked here has come through Berry Street and the stuff we've learned. Uh, so, individually and then yeah, accumulatively, it's, hundred, I mean, other people might have other views on it, but I personally believe it's come through, uh, yeah, come through all, all what we've learned through Berry Street.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. My, my hope is that this work has helped teachers who are resonating with it well, that this is allowing them to be the teachers and staff members that they want to be (laughs) like, you know, like any one of you, any one of us could choose to work in a different school in a different place. You know, we could choose to work in a more advantaged place. We could choose to work in a school with more resources or with students, with, with, you know, not as complex of learning needs as we, I know what you are doing every day. And so some, you know, people get into these jobs because they have values and they want to live out these values. And when the school gets in the way or the, they don't have the resources, or there's just not a strong enough leadership team, you know, keeping everybody going Um, or there's not a strong enough practice model to to kind of hinge people's concerns and improvement on, Um, you lose your meaning, you lose your ability to care. And so it's pretty rewarding to hear what you just said because I'd like to think that we've contributed to the incredible hard work, effort, and growth mindset of your teams Um, that we provided not just strategies to help teach stuff better, Uh, And not just strategies to help create a stronger community, but hopefully empowered adults to love what they do and Mm. keep on doing it, even on rough days.
0: I've got, if you don't mind, I want to ask you a couple of uh, probably more personal things about your own life. Um, That's like this this podcast, previous episodes have gone into uh, a lot of childhood kind of traumatic experience in, in different, different areas, um, in my own experiences and other people that I've interviewed and that kind of stuff. I guess from what you've, you've mentioned earlier on, so I guess from uh, being marginal, marginalized in different ways as you were growing up that you may have experienced in, um, in primary school, in high school, how, how did you not let that impact you? Like across, whether it was as you, as you were growing, uh, as you went through like all your academic studies, how did that not, that not get in the way? Like, how, how did you learn to deal with that uh, and put it, uh, I guess, put it in a way where it's motivated you and driven you, but not get in the way to stop you uh, and, and stop you doing certain things? Like, how do you think that's happened? How have you let it drive you?
1: Great questions, Jamie. I, I my mind drifts to sort of uh, my mind drifts to two things. One, I was really stubborn. Uh, I was stubborn starting around year 10, or age 10, like we were talking about earlier, because my strengths of fairness and equity combined with my grittiness and perseverance to just uh-huh. sort of kind of know what was right and know that I could, do things to make it feel more right. That that's a stubbornness. Now the the shadow side of that is stubbornness. The strength is called persistence. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our kids have both of those things. Yeah. Um, so that 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 was a clear thing in my brain. I, I there's something in me that would never give up on things that I knew were right. Yeah. The other thing uh, that I know uh, the other resource that I know that I had is I knew what. I was so blessed to know what my strengths were, and I was blessed to know that even in times of loneliness or stress or feeling like an outsider or feeling like I didn't have the supports I needed, my stubbornness kept me coming back to, well, there are things you can do really well. Yeah. And you just need to keep on focusing on that. And even if any, but nobody else really recognized that you're just going to keep on going. So that's stubbornness and my strength of running. So, yeah. you know, I was a very creative kid. I was celebrated for that. I was a very artistic kid. I was the, the kid that designed all the yearbooks and, the kid that designed all of the displays in school sometimes. And I, you know, I was rewarded in my school for showing creativity uh, eventually leading to my uh, design school dreams. Uh, It takes me back to kids that we both observe now that don't know they have strengths and they don't have champions in their lives or mentors or supports. To say you 're not going to get somewhere by focusing on your weaknesses you 're going to get somewhere by figuring out what your strengths are, and that 's the gift that I was given and that 's what I want to pass on to other kids
0: so d- d- who do you think helped you with that was that Do you think your adopted parents helped you find your strength the
1: strength uh, Yes, in part, uh, I think the privilege that I grew up in uh, we my family had many resources, and I had uh, I had very, very uh, rigorous music teachers and tutors, and I had—I was the kind of kid that I always got to go to after-school art classes and after-school art camps and things. So I was constantly had arenas where I could practice my strengths. But I really also attribute uh, my young person success to teachers. And not every one of the teachers, (laughs) Like some teachers were boring and annoying and not great teachers, but I, I I've had, I've had a series of very special educators in my life who took time to smile and took time to under try to understand what was going on in my projects or, or to, take me out to lunch or, you know, whatever the thing was to listen to me and to forward my ideas and say, Hey, you really could do this. This, this is a great essay. These are great ideas you need to develop. Uh, and that relationship that I felt very clearly all the way through my education, even through my graduate schools and other and beyond. I realized very quickly that if I could form strong bonds with educators and teachers in my life, then that, um, that would stead me well and it has even to today I think you know I I get I have the privilege of now mentoring and supervising graduate students and other people who want to learn some of the things that I do but I still have mentors right like I'm always looking for people who are much smarter than me uh, who have time to reflect with me and uh, I think that stems all the way back to success in school
0: yeah okay I was having a chat to someone Uh, a little bit earlier today I mentioned I was going to be interviewing you for the podcast and um, we were were talking about you and we were saying it's not often (laughs) it's not often that someone with I guess the high level of consciousness that you have, the high level of intelligence that you have whether you probably won't admit that or not will be okay to admit that but I'm saying that and still have an emotional awareness and intelligence as well. I, I don't think we've ever seen that, My, the, myself and the person I was talking, talking um, about you with, hasn't seen that either. I, that's it's a, such so amazing, I think that you like, as I said, you can have the high level of consciousness, the awareness, the intelligence that you have, like uh, how, how, where do you think that came from? How, how do you, is it something you just naturally have, Were you taught how to do this? What you, how do you have all this as a combination? Because it's it would be rare that someone would be as, I guess, academic as what you are, but also have the emotional understanding as well. Well, I haven't seen it anyway. Where do you think that comes from with you? Oh, first of all, thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you very much. I, You know, listening to you and reflecting here, I'm very, very sure of our purpose here on this planet. Uh-huh. And that's come from years and years and years of, study and i'll say sacred practice and nature and walking and mindfulness and all the stuff that i know people do on their journey to yeah. learning and that for me is the word it's learning mm-hmm. the, the what is unshakable in my confidence yeah. and it's probably the only thing that i'm 100 percent confident of is that our purpose our purpose here is to learn and our purpose here is to keep taking one step forward to continue to learn and not just learn about the self, but learn about the world and eventually figure out one's contribution to the world. Mm-hmm. And I know that to say that your purpose is learning, I realize, based on Maslow's and other developmental hierarchies that that's a privilege, right? To be able to focus one's life on learning and to not have to worry about the bottom of Maslow's pyramid around all these unmet needs that so many of our families are struggling with, that is a privilege and it's an honor and therefore a very heavy responsibility to keep learning with the object of contribution. So, I, I'd like to think on my best of days, I'm learning about other people, I'm learning new knowledge, I'm trying to forward the research, I, I've never made a professional decision based on a title or certainly not financial gain, <laughs> but, uh, but I've made it on, well, what, what is the learning here? And is this the place like Barry street is Barry street going to be the place and I'm going to learn. I'll know it's my time to leave Barry street when I feel like that is no longer a place of learning. And thank goodness, uh, my goodness, the you know, the the potential right now to continue our work at Barry street is, is, uh, incredible as we're now working internationally and helping people learn our, uh, learn our approach and our strategies. Yeah. So the opposite of not, if learning is not learning, uh, and some days I'm tired, right? Like you're tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. You know, it's like, I don't need to learn a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my brain is full and I need more reserves. And I need to go to sleep and wake up with more energy. Okay. But I think that that's always led my, uh, my direction in life. Okay.
0: Can I ask you another slightly personal question, how do you, how does Tom Brunzel tape, keep himself present, centered and grounded uh-huh. on, on a day-to-day basis or on the weekend or you know, how, what is, what do you do when you're down Tom, how do you, how do you keep yourself relaxed and I guess, yeah you've, you've just got this thing about you as I said let's actually you know what, before you answer that question I just want to mention something else, so I'll go, I'll go back to it, but there's something about you that you probably, I, I, I doubt anyone's measured it, it to you in this way, but you have this thing about you that I find, in, for lack of a better word, it's, in, it's intimidating. But not because you've done anything that makes you that way, you don't want to be that way, but you've just got this thing like, you've just got this awareness and consciousness where it's like, oh yeah, he, he, he knows, he knows his stuff. And, and yeah, I guess it's like in some ways it would be intimidating. Um, but in the most respectful way, like you're so, you're always so happy, you're always so in control, but it's going back to my question, keeping yourself present, centered and grounded. How do you, how do you keep yourself that way? How do you keep yourself relaxed and feeling on top of things? Thank you, JV. I'll tell you right
1: now, my, my partner and my family members would not say those same things. So, it's pretty, (laughs) I get humbled all the time. So, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh. I I think I've figured out over the years that if I don't refuel, then I will will look, behave, and feel vicariously Mm stress-affected, trauma-affected. So, I think all of us in our work have to be so conscious, especially in this time of pandemic, Mm -hmm. of how we continue to keep our mind focused and uh and it's hard uh especially now right i mean uh if i may say we're we you and i are recording this in the middle of august
0: 2021
1: yeah and we are in our sixth lockdown six, six, is this is our fifth or sixth sixth six. six this is our sixth lockdown mm-hmm. we are witnessing our friends up in new south wales in a very uncertain future right now mm-hmm. and so it's not as simple as saying oh just look at the glass half full you know it's just be resilient yeah. because the on un- this the, this future and the immediate future is uncertain what do we need to do i i how do i renew myself is first of all to admit this is these are very difficult times mm-hmm. is to not sugarcoat that and to not try to make people feel like, Oh, we just need to practice wellbeing strategies because this is really serious stuff that we're all going through as a planet, as a country, as a state.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I also know that if I don't protect my energy, then I will wake up in a very dark place. Meaning like I won't want to do the work we do and the work we do that you do and that I do is takes incredible amount of grit and determination. Um, So I've realized um, from the work of the great Brene Brown, I know a lot of your listeners would be familiar with her work. If you're not Mm -hmm. check it out, Ted talks Um, Brene Brown helped me understand that the difference between introversion and extroversion may not be what you look like because um, I look like an extrovert. Like I know how to work in rooms and I know how to to communicate ideas in, in, in effective ways. Mm -hmm. But I now know from Brene's definition that I'm an introvert, meaning that's where I get my energy from. Mm -hmm. So if I don't protect my own time, or my weekends or my off time in ways that are renewing to me, then I will not have the tank. Now an extrovert uh, let's say in this framework would get their energy from other people. They would need to be uh, at, you know, with 10 people at a barbecue every weekend and, and they love their group of friends and they really want to work, you know uh, as dynamically as they can to get that energy, but not me. Yeah. So when I'm alone, that's my refueling time and I love my garden And I love swimming and I love my pets and I love my uh, community cafes and all that stuff. And I try not to touch anything around work when I I get to separate stuff. Uh, So if I don't get that alone time, I'm not going to be much good to everybody else uh, on Monday morning.
0: Okay. Well, that gives a good insight because I often wondered how someone with such a high level of I guess workload and and uh, I guess schedule. How, how would you keep yourself grounded? And um, uh, yeah, that gives a good insight. So I'm I'm sure the listener will get 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 a lot out of that. And,
1: but oh, I have one more thing to say. I know as we're wrapping this up, I got to say one more thing to our listeners: sleep, sleep, do sleep. Yeah. yeah, and I say that quite seriously. Like from a from a neuro perspective. Haven't we all like had a really hard and complex problem the night before? And we can't you just can't solve it? And you just say, Stop. You just gotta go to sleep. Yeah. You wake up the next day and something's happened in our neurochemistry where synapses kind of form, and you think, Well, I kind of know what to do next. Yeah. But I also realize in time of pandemic in in particular. Sleep is a precious resource. That if I don't routinely go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, and get the rest and renewal that I need, then my my brain can't do the, and my body can't do the things it needs to do.
0: I think for my own life, I definitely think sleep is in there, but also getting up early. Like my listeners have heard me bang on about getting up early. Like my yeah. my my favorite grounding tool and regrouping tool and that makes, that reduces my anxiety and makes me feel way more ready uh, is getting up early. I don't know like the science behind it, if there is any, but I just, I love it so much. So yeah, there's, I've got to, but I have to get enough sleep to do that. I can't just go to bed at 12 and expect to get up at 4am. I have to go to, go to bed at uh, at a good hour to make that happen. But that, yeah, the sleep, but also the getting, getting up early is my, my, my my absolute favorite thing. And, uh, but also for the getting where I, that's where I get my energy. So as we were talking about before, like someone who's an extrovert might need to be around other people to get energy. I need to, I get my energy from when I get up super early in the morning. uh, And that's my favorite thing and i'm so glad i've brought her into my life so
1: well i really feel for any of us who work in schools who are not morning people by now <laughs> your life is gonna suck <laughs> you gotta figure that out real early yeah. but i think it helps that we work in schools and have had a long careers of waking up at four thirty-five, whatever it is to yeah. get our families and our pets and everything going
0: so dr tom brunzel The book is Creating Trauma-Informed Strength-Based Classrooms Uh, and so when's the the release date? The release date was a couple of weeks ago so you can
1: check it out on, you can buy it on online bookstores and you can also go to Barry Street's website, we're easy to find.
0: Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. i love chatting to you and getting, yeah, getting to learn a bit more about you because I've always wanted to know these, these things about you other than, you know, what you speak about here. So, you've given a good insight and uh, I'm sure the listener will get a lot out of it. And I know they'll get a lot out of your book because a lot of people that be listening to this are people that I've worked with and be teachers, so I'm sure that I'll be buying it. So, thank you, um, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jamie. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with me in some way or contact me or send me feedback, I'm on Instagram and Facebook under The Mindtrady. I'm on Spotify, you can follow me there. I'm on Apple, you can subscribe there and give me a 5-star review if you like what you're hearing. Uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. I look forward to chatting with you next time.